James Gunn decided to take a job with Warner Brothers, and then given his choice of projects, he chose to do Suicide Squad. So that's where we're at with that. Working with Disney, tweets come out, fired from Disney, gets a job there. And then sometime after all of that, we find out that Disney and James Gunn had kissed and made up and that James Gunn was going to go back and do Guardians of the Galaxy 3 once he was done with DC's Suicide Squad. However, it now looks like that timeline was completely different from reality. According to a story coming out now in, in a result of an interview that James Gunn did with Empire, James Gunn has now revealed that he joined Disney again. He rejoined the MCU not months later, but rather the day after he accepted the job with Warner Brothers, not the day after it became public that he had joined Warner Brothers and was doing Suicide Squad, but literally the day after that he privately accepted the job for Suicide Squad, Alan Horn gave him a call. They had talked it out and they had decided this means the timetable was much, much earlier like a whole hell of a lot earlier than a lot of us think. That shouldn't surprise us because that's normally how it works in this business. We hear an announcement, but more times than not, the content of that announcement was actually probably settled months before they ever made it public. Like, for instance, you know, when Ben Affleck was initially announced as Batman, they had actually agreed that Ben Affleck was going to be Batman like three or four months prior to them making the announcement. And that's what happens quite often. Anyway, here's what James Gunn had to say. This comes to us from the folks over at Empire. After hearing from Alan Horn, then, of course, this is after one day after he accepted and it wasn't made public yet. But one day after he accepted the Suicide Squad job, after hearing from Alan Horn the next day, Gunn knew he had to update MCU head honcho Kevin Feige on his next project, who, when told it was a DC movie, Kevin Feige asked James Gunn, is it Superman? James Gunn stated that it wasn't Superman, although that was a possibility, he tells Empire. A lot of people forget that one of the movies that DC offered James Gunn was, you want to do a Superman movie? He opted to go with Suicide Squad instead and explained that he had chosen the Suicide Squad. Kevin Feige's reaction? Please, please make a good movie. Just make a great movie. While Marvel and DC have always been rivals, the big two in the comic book industry, Gunn hasn't had to keep his latest project secret from his friends at the MCU. Kevin knew who all the characters were months before we revealed them at fandom, he says. He still knows who the villain is, writes James Gunn, talking about his interactions with Kevin Feige. All right. There's a couple of interesting things here that I think are kind of worth chatting about and, and worth talking about. One is this, getting back to that main thing we were talking about, how I think we need to be reminded as movie fans quite often that when by the time we do hear these announcements, they've been done deals for a long time. For example, there was actually a good period of time that passed from when James Gunn and Warner Brothers agreed for him to do Suicide Squad and when we actually found out about it. There was actually a good amount of time. After we found out about James Gunn doing Suicide Squad, it was still another good period of time after that that we found out that him and Alan Horn had made up and that James Gunn was going to be coming back into the fold and doing Guardians of the Galaxy 3 after he was done with Suicide Squad. Finding out that he and Alan Horn actually had agreed upon that one day 
after James Gunn had agreed to Suicide Squad really kind of drives that home that a lot of the stuff just states for a long period of time. The other interesting thing about this story to me is it reminds us once again, while those of us in fandom can act very childish at times, all of us included, the guy sitting in front of the camera, every all of you watching it. Well, it's true that us fandom can actually act a lot of childish sometimes in this whole DC versus Marvel thing and getting all riled up. The reality is that a lot of the times the principal players in Marvel and DC are actually big fans of the other company. That actually happens a lot. I mean, the very first thing and James Gunn later on describes the giddiness to Kevin Feige, like as soon as Kevin Feige found out James Gunn was doing a DC movie, he was like, is this Superman? Like he was all excited for maybe him doing Superman. And then finding out Sue Sky said, dude, just go make a great movie. Kevin Feige went and visited the set of Suicide Squad, which I'm sure was pretty exciting for a lot of people there, having Kevin Feige there as well. And I think it's important and healthy for us as fans to remember that these principal players are actually fans of each other. Right. A lot of times the the people at DC actually really like the Marvel movies and the people at Marvel really like the DC movies. And it's good for everybody when the other succeeds because they're all involved in making comic book genre movies. The better and higher profile and more popular the comic book movie genre becomes, it's good for everybody. That doesn't mean if DC makes a hit movie that automatically means the next MCU movie is going to be a hit. That doesn't mean that, but it's helpful. It's helpful. That's all. And so when I was reading this story about James Gunn actually having rejoined Marvel a lot sooner than we thought, and then finding out about Kevin Feige's enthusiasm for what he was doing over at DC, I just thought that was kind of fun. And you know what? I am personally still secretly hoping, and I believe, I don't know this, but I believe that once James Gunn is done Suicide Squad and he goes back over to the MCU and does Guardians of the Galaxy 3, I believe we're going to see James Gunn still do another DC movie after that. Again, I don't know that. I don't have any facts to back that up. I'm just saying I kind of believe that's what's going to happen. So anyway, that's just kind of my thoughts on this. Question is, guys, what do you think about this story, about the fact that James Gunn actually rejoined the MCU a lot sooner than we thought and the apparent enthusiasm that Kevin Feige had for James Gunn doing a DC film? Jump down to the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move into our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here in the John Campia show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. By any time you see a really cool piece of news or whatever about movies or streaming, go on over anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic. It's totally free. Hit submit and then maybe... Just maybe you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Max Zwack. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. And Max writes, hey, John. I finally caught up with Ted Lasso over the weekend, and it certainly lived up to the expectations. I read today that Apple TV Plus has renewed the show for a third season ahead of the show's season two production, even starting in January. What do you think of Apple's commitment to the show, and does it get you more excited for season two? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And yeah, listen, I got to tell you, you've heard me talk. If you watch this show, you've heard me talk for a while about... Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso was another one of these little shows that was popping up on Apple TV Plus. 
and it quite frankly looked rather ridiculous. I honestly didn't really have any interest in it. I really like Jason Sudeikis. I like Jason Sudeikis a lot, but there was nothing. It just looked like a cheap Saturday Night Live sketch show. You know what I mean? It, it looked like a Saturday Night Live character that they somehow transitioned over to having his whole show, his own whole show, right? But I had a few of you guys write into the show and say, John, this Ted Lasso show is really good. So kind of begrudgingly, I tried it out. And I'm so glad you guys told me about it because it's awesome. It is like one of their Apple TV Plus's most successful show. It's like their number one show in 50 different markets. It's been a huge hit for them. There's no way around. It's a huge, huge hit. Now, I love it. Most people who watch it love it. But here's the interesting thing. They are so confident in it. Not only are they going in and going to be shooting season two in January, they've gone ahead and pulled the trigger and they're going to actually have green light season three, even before they started shooting season two, which I think shows an incredible commitment, but they know it's a big hit. Here's what they had to say over at the Hollywood reporter. Apple has handed out an early season three renewal for the Jason Sudeikis soccer comedy from showrunner Bill Lawrence. Of course, we're talking about Ted Lasso. The pickup arrives as the series is gearing up to return to production in January in London on its second season. The show has broken audience records for Apple, which, like other streamers, does not release traditional viewership data and has drawn 20, one show has drawn a 25% new viewers to the platform. One show did that for Apple. The series has grown more than 600% and set new records for competition and engagement worldwide. The key thing here is that Ben Lasso or Ben Lasso, Dead Lasso aired and they continued to get new audiences. Like people just kept going back and it started to get that word of mouth. Now, of course, it helps that Ted Lasso does the week to week release schedule. Um, instead of dropping all the episodes at once, they drop it week by week. It started building buzz, building an audience. That's how I got caught on to it. And what's happened is that build and that buzz and that enthusiasm has now spilled over that even though season one has already had its finale, new people continue every week to discover this show and it's grown by 600%, which are crazy numbers. So in one way, I'm excited to hear that Ted Lasso has gotten renewed for season three, even before starting to shoot season two. But on the other hand, this is one of the biggest no brainers ever. I mean, you just looked at the numbers. What this one show has done for Apple TV Plus, the types of numbers it's garnering, the insane amount of growth the show has had for itself. I mean, this is the ultimate no-brainer. Honestly, if anything, I'm kind of surprised they didn't come out and announce green lights for seasons three, four, five, and six. I mean, it is a small half-hour show, which really means about 20-something minutes. Uh, not terribly expensive to make. And they are, it's like by far the most successful thing they've done. So I'm not surprised at all, but I will tell you, I'm really damn happy about it because I really love this show and I couldn't be happier for Jason Sudeikis. Anyway, guys, the question is, what do you think about this news? Are you surprised they greenlit season three, even before season two even started shooting? Are you a big fan of the show like me? Maybe you don't even like the show. Maybe you haven't tried the show out. Anyway, guys, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, Let's move into main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Eric Klein. And Eric Klein writes... 
Hello, John and Aaron, and unfortunately, Aaron's not here today. With the recent news of Jared Leto and now Jojo Mangianello uh, joining the Justice League reshoots, my question is, how do they stuff these two majorly significant characters into that movie? Didn't Snyder say that he had already shot everything and that only stuff he shot will be in the new version? I'm looking forward to it. I'm just a bit confused. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending in the question, man. And yeah, of course, we heard uh, about a week or so ago, Jared Leto was going to be in the new Justice League movie. People like me, one of the some of the one of the rare weirdos in the world who actually really liked jo- uh, Jared Leto's Joker, I was thrilled to hear about that. And then a few days ago, they came out and said Joe Manganiello, who in the theatrical version just shows up in the post credit scene, he's also going in. And coming back for new shooting as Deathstroke. And I love Joe Manganiello. I love Deathstroke. So that sounds really intriguing and like good news as well. But it does, as you say, raise a couple of interesting questions. Interesting question number one. How do you cram two majorly significant characters like Joker and Deathstroke into a movie where they didn't have anything in Zack Snyder's original shot shooting. Because yes, you're right. Zack Snyder said he'd shot everything. Everything shot. That, that's been the whole premise for the past couple of years is that Zack Snyder had shot everything. All that needed, well, tons of people insisted the movie was absolutely completely finished, which I told everybody it wasn't. But, but one of the things we did think was finished was that it was just all shot. All that needed to be done was a little bit of post-production. Now, I defend this because... Any filmmaker, you guys have heard me say this before, any filmmaker who makes a big blockbuster tentpole kind of film, when they're done shooting, every filmmaker gets an opportunity to go back and do some reshoots, right? So when they make a new Star Wars movie, there's always reshoots scheduled. Whenever they make an MCU movie, there's always reshoots scheduled. Whenever they make a James Bond movie, there's always scheduled time set aside and budgeted for for reshoots. And whenever they do a DC movie, there's always a scheduled time and budgetary considerations put in for reshoots. Why should Zack Snyder not be given that same luxury? Why should Zack Snyder not be given that same benefit? So, yes, he had said he'd shot everything, but... If everything had gone according to plan before, he would have shot everything. And then sometime later, he would have been given an opportunity to do some reshoots where he could have changed a couple things up, maybe added one or two things in a little bit later, right? Every filmmaker who does a tentpole gets that opportunity. So it really shouldn't surprise us too awful much that Jared Leto uh, is going to be making his first appearance, but also that we've got Joe Manganiello going to be shooting new stuff. Now, the only thing that makes this a little bit surprising, admittedly, the only thing that makes this a little bit surprising, admittedly, is the fact that when HBO Max announced that they were going to do this new version of Justice League, they initially said there's not going to be any reshooting, right? They initially said that. They said, "Uh, we're going to have some people come in and do some audio pickups, but that's it. Well, that's changed. And that's fine. Question, though, that you're asking is, how do they jam and cram these characters into this movie, right? I mean, this is already a pretty full movie. We're talking characters like Superman, 
Batman, Cyborg, Flash, Aquaman, Wonder Woman. You know, you've got Steppenwolf. You've got Darkseid. We're going to see a little bit more Darkseid in this one than we did. Well, we didn't see any of them in the theatrical. So we're going to get a glimpse of Darkseid. Not very much, mind you, but we're at least going to get a glimpse of them. Now you're adding Deathstroke and Joker. How are you going to squeeze these in? I don't know. And really, nobody knows for sure how they're going to do this. But I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, just because Joker is now going to be in it and we're going to get a little bit more or at least something different with Deathstroke, that doesn't mean they're going to be in it much. As a matter of fact, from everything I'm hearing, uh, it's going to be less than a week on set. So it really doesn't sound like they're going to be in it much. Plus, if you look at movies like Endgame or Infinity War, how many big characters do they have in those? I mean, you're talking Iron Man, Captain America, Scarlet Witch, Vision, Black Widow, Black Panther. You're talking about like just the Guardians themselves. So you're talking about Gamora and Star-Lord and Drax and and Groot and Rocket and then oh, and then Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and and on and on and on, right? We you squeeze in a lot of characters there. There's a way to do it. Here's what I think is ultimately going to happen. Now, I've got nothing to base this on factually, okay? Let me just admit that right up front. I have nothing to base this on factually. I have no evidence of the whatsoever. This is just my suspicion. When I understand how little Leto and Manginello are even going to be on set, here's what I'm guessing. And again, it's just a guess, so don't hold, this, hold, don't hold me to this. My guess is this. I suspect that even though... I don't believe Zack Snyder shot that post-credit scene with Lex and Deathstroke. While I don't believe Zack Snyder shot that, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he wanted some kind of post-credit button like that. And if he kind of reshoots a reimagined version of that, but instead of just Lex welcoming Deathstroke, what if it's like a, a yacht in the middle of this incredible body of water, gorgeous views and scenery? Maybe it's in an office in a tower. Who knows? But instead of it just being Lex in the post credit scene and then Deathstroke comes walking on the boat, what if they reshoot something like that? And let's, for argument's sake, say it's on a boat, but it could be anywhere. It could be on a plane, could be in a building, could be in the jungle, doesn't matter. For argument's sake, let's just stick with the boat for now. There's Lex sitting there, Deathstroke walks on, and then a door opens from one of the cabins back there on the boat coming out onto the deck, and out comes walking Joker with a couple of his guys. How cool would that be? And then just throwing it out there. What if Yaya then comes out of the water as well in his black uh, in his black manta outfit? Again, I have no no evidence of this. I have no proof of this. But again, imagine something like that final scene in Justice League. And you get you know, you got Deathstroke come out and then surprising out comes Joker and then surprising comes Black Manta. And then who knows, maybe Cheetah. I mean, I don't know that 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 stuff all came later. So I'm now getting ahead of myself. But my guess is that it's going to be something small, impactful, but small. So that's my guess. Like if, if it's stuff that Zach never shot in the first place and now he's just coming up with some new ideas to, to punch in with some reshoots, I have a feeling it's going to be something small and maybe it could be something like that. Maybe. I'm just guessing. But maybe it could be something completely different. So 
Number one, I don't think there's any reason to panic about squeezing in too many characters. Infinity War, uh, a, lot, a couple of the X-Men movies had a lot more characters and they were fine. Number two, it seems like it's going to be fairly small because they don't have a lot of time to shoot this stuff. And it doesn't seem to fit in with what they originally did with that. So it could be something completely different, but it looks like it's going to be something small. So I think it's completely inconsequential. I don't think it's anything to worry about. And then how do I think they'll pull it off? I think it's going to be a post credit scene. Again, I haven't heard that from anybody. Just my guess. But let me ask you guys, what are your theories? How do you think they're going to work in Deathstroke and Joker? Some people writing, oh, Deathstroke and Joker are going to be working with Darkseid. They're not shooting that long. They have a very, very short window to shoot this. But what do you think? How do you think they might use them? Maybe it's going to be a flashback in Batman on how he lost that Robin. Maybe Deathstroke's going to have his own flashback connection with another one of the characters. Or maybe they're going to be together, like I'm kind of guessing, in a post credit scene. What do you guys think is going to happen? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Ian A. Barth, who writes, So, I saw an article in The Hollywood Reporter saying that Amazon stated that apparently users don't actually own content they purchased on Prime Video. What the heck? What do they think we're paying for? A lifetime rental? I need your opinion on this. I Am I overreacting or is Amazon being as stupid as I think? All right. Thanks for sending that in, man. And listen, first thing I got to say before we get into any of this at all, pure transparency, going to let you guys know that almost half of my household income comes from Amazon. Just letting you guys know that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife, Anne, who used to work at Hasbro, for the last seven or eight months, she has been a senior person over at Amazon. So just so you know, there is a connection between me and Amazon. I'm still going to tell you what I honestly think. And for those of you guys who have watched me for any period of time, you're going to know what I'm about to say is very consistent with what I've always said. But still, I wanted to give you that disclaimer. Be totally transparent. Just so you guys know. All right. Okay. With that being said. What is this story all about? Okay, well, here's the thing. There is a lawsuit going on right now where this uh, there's a particular woman who has taken Amazon and is trying to get a class action lawsuit going, is taking Amazon to court, suing them for the fact that, according to the terms of use, when you buy a movie on Amazon Prime for digital streaming, that you don't actually own it that sometime in the future, they could remove that movie that you paid for. And she has therefore been taking them to court and trying to sue them for this. There's a couple of important things to keep in mind. First thing we should look over this is what is Amazon's argument about this and why would this happen? Amazon in the court filings kind of laid out why this could happen theoretically in the future that you buy a movie on Amazon Prime and then sometime later it's gone. Here's what they had to say, okay? This is from TechRadar. The most relevant argument here that the Prime Video Terms of Use is presented to consumers every time they buy digital content from Amazon Prime Video. These terms of use expressly state that purchasers obtain only a limited license to view content and that purchased content may become unavailable 
this is the key part, may become unavailable due to provider license restrictions or other reasons. Let's read that last part again. It may in the future become unavailable due to the provider license restrictions or other reasons. Now, this is key and important because what you really have to understand is that unless you are talking about a Amazon movie, for example, uh, an Amazon, a movie on Amazon that is specifically an Amazon Prime production, right? Unless a movie that you're buying on Amazon Prime is specifically an Amazon Prime production, you are actually watching a movie that Amazon itself does not own, right? That's key here. That's what this statement is basically saying. So the long and the short of it is that when you go and watch, I don't know, let's let's take a movie from the last few years. Let's say uh, Harley Quinn, the Harley Quinn movie, right? When you go and watch Harley Quinn and you decide to buy it on Amazon Prime, the, the key of this little statement is basically saying that Amazon doesn't actually own that movie. That movie actually belongs to Warner Brothers. Now, they have a license for it. They can do this and they can do that and all that sorts of good stuff. And that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, the movie doesn't belong to Amazon. And what Amazon is saying in this statement is that, listen, if for some reason sometime down the line, Warner Brothers finds some legal means to revoke a license, there's nothing we can do. That's not us. We don't own it. And therefore, there could be circumstances that are beyond our control in the future that maybe Warner Brothers pulls a license on that, or maybe Paramount pulls a license on it, or maybe Disney pulls a license, something along those lines, right? What is important to understand here is that this isn't just Amazon. Amazon's the one that's being taken to court, but this is every online, you know, disseminator stuff. This would apply to Google as well. Google doesn't own Harley Quinn. Google doesn't own that movie, so it doesn't belong to them either. iTunes doesn't own that movie, so it doesn't belong to them either. So what Amazon is basically saying here is, hey, look, we have to put that in the terms of use, in terms of service, because if something happens with the owner's license that they decide somehow, some way to revoke something, well, then there's nothing we can do, and you as users have to understand that. Now, it is also important to understand that as of right now, the physical media you buy, technically speaking, legally, technically speaking, you don't own that physical media. I mean, you're in possession of it and they're not going to come to uh, some kind of, you know, MPA Gestapo isn't going to come to your house in the middle of the night and raid your home and take your Blu-rays or your DVDs from you. But technically speaking, in a legal term, you don't own that. That's why there have been rules about you can't do this with your physical disc. Like there was a big argument. One of the things I really argue against is that the, the law basically says you can't take your movie and make a copy of it. That might have been overturned at some point, but they might still be the case, or at least it was at some point. You can't do that. Why? Because technically you don't actually own that movie. You are limited in what you can do with that. See, when I buy a toaster, I can do whatever the hell I want with that toaster. I own it. It's mine. I want to take that toaster and, I don't know, like cook 
lettuce in a bathtub of water by dropping the toaster in a bathtub with lettuce and watching it cook the lettuce. That's a pretty stupid thing to do, but it's my toaster. And if I want to do that, I can do that. If I want to take that toaster and plug it in beside my bed and turn it on so that the red glow coming from the toaster acts as my nightlight, that's a stupid thing to do, but it's my toaster. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. If I want to take that toaster, put it behind the back tire of my car and run over it, it's my toaster. I can do whatever I want with that toaster. With the physical media you buy, you technically can't do that. There's, that's not technically legally yours. We have a physical copy of it. We can hold it in our hands. So there's that. So this whole thing with the digital stuff, whether it's on Amazon or Google or iTunes, or whatever, is kind of a little bit of an extension of that. The key difference being you don't actually have a physical copy of it in your hand, right? So there's that. Here's the other interesting thing about this lawsuit. So this woman is suing Amazon because they might take away a movie sometime in the future. Amazon is asking the court to kind of dismiss this. And here's Amazon's argument. Amazon says that the plaintiff in the case hasn't had any prime video content become unavailable to date. So Amazon is saying, your honor, this lady doesn't have a right to sue us because she hasn't been harmed in any way. Nothing she has ever bought on Amazon Prime is no longer available to her. That's their argument. So Amazon says that the plaintiff in the case hasn't had any prime video content become unavailable to date. Plaintiff claims that defendant Amazon Prime's video service, which allows consumers to purchase video content for streaming or download, misleads consumers because sometimes that video content might later become unavailable if a third party's rights holder revokes or modifies Amazon's license. The complaint points vaguely to online commentary about this alleged potential harm, but does not identify any prime video products unavailable to the plaintiff herself. So basically, in legalese, what Amazon is saying is, Your Honor, she has no right to sue us because nothing wrong has happened to her. She is claiming theoreticals, but as of right now, she has never bought anything on Amazon Prime Video that is not now available to her. That's never happened. They go on to say, in fact, your honor, all of the Prime Video content that plaintiff has ever purchased remains available. And Amazon says the plaintiff has continued to buy content on Amazon Prime Video even after this complaint was filed, making 13 such purchases. So not only did this woman not lose any movies, after she sued them and started the lawsuit, she continued to buy movies for them. So like Amazon is basically saying, Your Honor, here's the thing. Number one, she hasn't suffered any loss at all because everything she's ever bought from us is still there and available. Number two, she obviously can't be all that concerned about it, Your Honor, because even after launching this lawsuit, we can see her account. She's bought 13 more movies since we started this thing. So this is a lawsuit that's probably going nowhere. But there's still something to talk about here that I think is important. Yes, um, this isn't just an Amazon thing. This is an online thing. This is everything. Two, this is not Amazon making a decision. Amazon just wanted to put in their terms of use so that you understood it may be taken out of their hands because Warner Brothers may find a way to revoke a license or Disney may find a way to revoke a license. If that's the case, there's nothing Amazon can do because Amazon doesn't own those movies. So that's the other thing. But it still begs an important question. In our minds... I, at least for my own, when I buy something, 
that thing is now mine. That's the, that is the common understanding of buying something, right? So like I buy this Batman mug, it's mine. It's mine. This belongs to me. If I want to throw it against the wall and smash it, I can do that. If I want to fill it with beer, I don't drink beer, but if I did, if I wanted to fill this cup with beer, I can do that. If I wanted to fill this cup with goat's milk, I could do that. If I wanted to fill this cup with my own piss and then stand on a bridge and pour it on cars driving underneath, hell, I can do, well, I guess technically I'm not allowed to pour it on cars, but anyway, if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to fill this cup with my own urine, I could do that. Maybe I'll do that halfway through the show if I have to go badly enough. Now that I've put that image in your head, the thing is, when you're told you're buying something, you own it. It is your perception and understanding of the facts at hand that I own this, right? And therefore, when you download a video and you're being like, when you open up Amazon Prime Video or Google Play or iTunes or whatever or Vudu, whatever, and you see rent for $3.99 or $5.99 or $7, whatever, or purchase for $19.99. Purchase. Okay. I understand purchase. That means I'm buying it. And it's mine. There is nothing that Google or Vudu or iTunes or Amazon can do about that because they don't own it in the first place. The only thing and what the thing that I think places like Amazon and like Google and whatever have to do is become far more clear about what somebody is getting when they pay $19.99 and burying those details in a user agreement is not adequate in my opinion. Well, John, what do you put on that button? You got the rent button. What do you put buy? Sort of maybe have permanent access to this movie, kind of maybe if Warner Brothers doesn't revoke the license later. Is that what you put on the button? I'm not sure. I don't have the answer to that. But I do believe this has to become made clear. Now, I got to say, from my own personal experience of being a streamer for a decade or more, I've bought a lot of movies. I've never lost one. I've never had one disappear. Now, I'm not saying nobody else ever has. I'm just telling you what my own personal experience is. Every movie I've ever bought is still there. When I open up my digital catalog, every movie I've ever bought is still 100% there. I can't say the same about every DVD and Blu-ray I've ever bought because those things go missing. People borrow them. They get put in the wrong box in a move or something. There's tons of DVDs and Blu-rays I've bought over the years that I'm no longer in possession of. But every single digital purchase I've ever made, I still have personally. So this is a theoretical thing. But it does raise a problem. I agree that I think somehow these digital merchants need to make it more clear about what it is you're actually doing when you choose to drop $19.99 or $30 or $15, whatever, for the purchase option. I think they got to become more clear. One other thing I should say about it is this, though, to be honest, to be honest, when we pay 12 bucks to buy a movie, or $19.99 to buy a movie, right? I mean, 
how many movies do I own on digital stream that I still go back and watch regularly from over five or six years ago? Not many, to be honest. And also, honestly, when I buy an electric razor, I don't expect it to last me eight years. You know, I buy an electric razor. I understand at some point I have to get a new one. I, I drop $2,500 on a computer. I know probably in about three or four years, I'm going to have to spend another $2,500 to, to upgrade the computer, update the specs, get it running the modern, you know, tools and software. I'm just going to have to do that again. And look, if I buy a movie for $19.99 right now, if in 15 years from now, 15 years from now, Warner Brothers pulls the license for Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, and I got to buy it again. Okay. I got to drop another $15. I, I mean, I don't know. To me, it's not that big of an issue, but I still think these online merchants have to become more transparent and more clear about what it is that's happening. How do they do that? I'm not really sure. I don't have the answer for that, but it is an answer they need to come up with. Question is, what do you guys think about this? Do you think that there is an easy solution to this? What do you think about the lawsuit in general? Do you think this is Amazon's fault? Do you think it's all the online merchants fault? What do you guys feel about this? Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down and out of the way, let's move on to main topic number four. And our fourth main topic today gets submitted to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Matthew Gray. And Matthew Gray writes, Hi, John. Greetings from London, England. Well, greetings, Matthew. Big fan since the AMC days. My question is, do you think fans who campaign to see the Snyder Cut will say they loved it regardless of how good or bad it actually is? I can see the initial reaction being similar to The Phantom Menace. It's, it's interesting that you brought up The Phantom Menace. I'll talk about that in a second. When it came out, thanks and keep bringing the filthiest filth. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And this was actually, I, I'm going to let you guys know, this question from Matthew was actually lifted from the open mic podcast we did yesterday because I thought it was such an interesting topic to bring out and I've seen more and more people talking about this online. So I thought I'd, I'd want to address it here on the show. Here's the thing. I, I, I can only assume that Matthew saw the same online debate that was going on about this. Cause I, I came across the same topic in one of the boards uh, a couple days ago. So I can only assume Matthew saw the same one and that's why he wrote it in. So the question is, do we think that people who are advocating strongly for a Snyder Cut over the last few years, do we think that when the Snyder Cut comes out, which remember, Man of Steel, masterpiece of a movie, by the way, Man of Steel was hated by a whole ton of people. Half the critics, half the audience hated it. Uh, Batman versus Superman came out. Half the critics, half the audiences hated it. I like them both. I love Man of Steel, but it still is what it is. What do we think their reaction is going to be? Are they going to say... These people who advocated for a Snyder cut, when it comes out, are these people going to say it's the most awesome thing ever and it's great, even if it's a pile of crap? I've been seeing that question being asked a lot. Here's the thing about that, though. It really is a loaded question and it's fixed. The question, it's a fixed question. What do you mean by that? Follow me here. Do I think that that some people who advocated strongly for a Snyder Cut version of Justice League over the past couple of years are going to, by default, just say that it's awesome when it comes out? Yes. But everybody does it. Follow me here. The reason I say this question is fixed 
is because let's ask another theoretical question, okay? Let's ask another theoretical question. Theoretical question is, do you think people who have dyed their hair blue, and there are, there are a lot of, I see a lot of people with blue dyed hair, actually. I mean, it's, it's actually more, people color their hair more and more these days. So a lot of people out there color their hair different colors, whole bunch of them blue. So if you were to ask the question, do you think if somebody who had blue colored hair came across a bus stop and nobody was there and there was just a bag sitting there with a million dollars and nobody was around and no one would catch them. Do you think somebody with blue dyed hair would pick up that bag and, and take it? The answer to the question is yes. However, it's not just people with blue dyed hair would do that. People with brown hair would do that. People with blonde hair would do that. Redheads would do that. People with black as midnight hair would do that. Not everybody, but yeah, I think somebody with blue colored hair would probably pick up that bag and run with it. But I also think anybody would. I mean, not everybody, but I think anybody from any group of people. I think a brown haired person has just as much likelihood to reach over and say, hey, there's a bag with a million dollars here at this bus stop and nobody's around. Yoink. And go. I think somebody with blonde hair has equally as much of a chance to do that, right? The question is fixed. And so in asking, would people who advocated hard for the Snyder Cut movie, even if the movie ends up being bad, and that's a subjective opinion in and of itself, but for whatever sake, for argument's sake, let's say it's bad. I don't believe it's going to be bad, but let's say it is. Are those people who advocate for the Snyder Cut, are a bunch of them just going to say they, it's awesome anyway? Yes. But the question is fixed because everybody does that. Everybody does that. You've done that. Maybe not with Snyder Cut, but maybe it's with something else. But you've done it. And I've done it. And this is why it was interesting that you brought up The Phantom Menace. It's interesting that you brought up The Phantom Menace in this is because for the, those of you guys who don't know, I mean, everybody knows I hate the prequels. I don't like the prequels. If other people love them, that's awesome. But I think the prequels are terrible. But when the first Star Wars movie was coming out, when that first prequel was coming out, The Phantom Menace, we never thought we were going to get another Star Wars movie again. And here comes The Phantom Menace. And oh my God, it's got Liam Neeson in it. And to a kid like me, who Star Wars is basically life, Star Wars is life to me. And it certainly was when I was younger as well. So when that movie was coming out, I was heavily invested, heavily invested in it. And so I went to go see it for the first time. And I'm like, that was the greatest thing ever. I didn't realize I was just basically talked myself into liking it. And then the second time I went to go see it, I'm like, okay, it wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it was so great. And then the third time I saw it, okay, maybe it wasn't all that great, but it was really good. I mean, it was really good. And then the fourth time I saw it, I was like, well, it, I mean, it's still good, right? And then like the fifth time, this isn't so good. And then sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth time, I'm like, oh no, this is just horrible. This is so bad. This is so bad. But I was heavily invested in it emotionally, even before the damn thing came out. And that's an example of me when that's happened to me. And I guarantee you almost everybody has that same experience. So that's why I say it's a fixed question. It's an unfair question. 
Do we think there are some people who advocated for, for a Snyder Cut movie who are heavily, heavily, heavily invested in it? That even if it turns out to be bad and just as divisive as the other ones and whatever, do we think they're still going to say it's awesome? That's unfair. Because if you ask the question, does a person who is heavily invested in any property have a possibility of just saying it was awesome even if it really wasn't? The answer to that is yes. It's true of anything, of any property, of any movie fan or whatever. So, yeah, I do think there are going to be some Snyder Cut advocates who are going to say it's great even if it wasn't. Sure. But I only believe that because that's true of everybody, of every property, right? I think it's true of everybody, of every property. So I've been seeing a lot of people arguing about this is that no, they won't or yes, they were. When really the truth is, yes, some of them will, but only because Everybody does it. It's not just them. It's not just people with blue dyed hair. It's everybody. And so, yeah, I, I think they will only because I think that's true of everything and everybody. And I don't think it makes it any more special or nefarious just because it's the Snyder Cut. Now, look, you guys know how I feel about this, right? Bottom line for me is other than Sucker Punch other than Sucker Punch, uh, I've liked every movie that Zack Snyder's ever made, particularly Man of Steel, which is a masterpiece. Um, so since I liked his DC offering so far, I mean, Man of Steel, obviously, Batman versus Superman, I'm expecting that I'm going to like this next one. I'm also expecting that people who didn't like his other DC offerings probably aren't going to like this new thing either. They've already had their taste and sample of what Zack Snyder's DC flavor is, and they don't like it. Fair enough. There's no reason to expect that they're going to change their minds, but there's no reason to expect I'm going to change my mind either. I like his other stuff. I'm expecting I'm going to like this. So let's see. Let's see how it turns out. Question is, guys, how do you feel about that? Do you think my analogy applies? Maybe you think it doesn't. Do you think you have a hard line answer for that one way or the other? I think it's more middle of the road. What do you guys think? Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that down and out of the way, let's now move on and start taking your live questions. You guys have been sending in live comments and questions. Maybe it can be about something entirely new. Maybe it can be about one of the things we just talked about. Once again, just simply use the tip links in the top of the description of this video or simply enter it in manually, streamlines.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. And thank you to all you guys for supporting this channel. Okay, let's go on over and start getting into it, shall we? And we'll start things off here with Jesse. And Jesse writes, do you think part of the decision where to go? There it is. Do you think part of the decision to make Batwoman a new character is they didn't want to deal with the controversy like when Ruby was cast uh, by that? I mean, her being bullied so bad that she had to leave social media for not being gay enough to play Kate. All right. So for those of you who don't know, the CW Batwoman show, Ruby Rose has left the show. She was the main character Batwoman. Now, not only are they replacing her as an actress, they're replacing the character. Now, a totally different character in that CW show is going to be putting on the Batwoman costume and will take on the moniker of Batwoman. It's a totally new character. Do I think that the reason they decided to make it an entirely new character was so they didn't have to deal with the stuff like they did with Ruby? No, I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I think just recasting... Just by recasting it all, you're opening yourself up to that potential controversy. So it doesn't really protect you from anything. Not to mention this new character is also supposed to be a, a lesbian character. So I, I mean, no big deal. They're just keeping that consistent. 
So no, I really don't think that because because doing this wouldn't shield them from that controversy at all. If somebody wanted to make it, and by the way, what does not being gay enough mean? That's one of the stupidest things ever. Anyway, I don't think this particular move would have shielded them from that anyway. If somebody wanted to make an issue out of something, they can still make an issue out of something. So no, personally, I don't think that was one of the motivating factors behind it. And I'm going to check out the new Batwoman. The, the first go of Batwoman season one, I didn't enjoy. Like I tried a few episodes and just didn't really work for me. Uh, but, you know, with a brand new character or a brand new lead, I'll give it another shot and uh, we'll see how that goes. All right. Next up, Willow writes, how does the finances of something like Netflix work? They are supposed to be billions in debt and consistently spend more money than they're earning each year, but people don't seem concerned about them going out of business. Right. So this is a really fascinating thing. So we've talked about this a lot, despite the billions and billions and billions of dollars that. Netflix generates. The reality is they're going to be, they're estimating by the end of the year, they're going to be $20 billion in debt. They, in other words, every year they spend more money than they make. How is that not a major problem? Here's why it's not a major problem. I mean, it is a major problem. Don't get me wrong, but here's why it's not a cataclysmic problem for them. It's because of what their revenue is, right? Because if you look at something like, let's say you were operating an Apple stand, okay, and you've got $20 in the bank, you borrowed 50 bucks from your uncle to start up your Apple stand, you're making $10 a day, but you're, but you're spending $12 a day. At that scale, you are going to be broke real quick and... Your uncle has no incentive to give you more money or more financing or another line of credit because there's nothing in your model that shows it can work. However, with Netflix, the sheer volume of revenue that they generate, Netflix at any time could cut their spending in half, right? Anytime they want, and believe me, there is a time coming when they will. But at any time, if Netflix wanted, they could just cut their spending in half, just like that. They could just make the decision, we're going to slash all of our budgets in half. We're only going to green light half the amount of shows that we did before. And instead of spending, you know, $38 billion a year in, in operations and content development and all that kind of stuff, we're going to spend $19 billion a year. Well, now guess what? If they did that overnight, they're making more because of the amount of sheer sheer volume of revenue that they make. Now they're making money every year instead of losing money every year. And because Netflix is in that position that if they chose to, they could turn it all around like that, they have no problem securing as much line of credit and as much debt as they want. Because anybody who is loaning them money knows that even though they're in a deficit, they would really have no problem long-term repaying that debt, even with interest, simply because of the sheer volume of revenue that they're generating. And it's not like just to keep the lights on, they have to spend $38 billion a year. No, right now, because of the stream wars, they're choosing to spend that much money. They're choosing to spending all this money to try to establish themselves as deep and just embed themselves and become the dominant streaming thing and keep that position. But at any time, they can just slash 20 billion off their spending if they wanted to. 
So that's why you can get a company like Netflix spend outrageous amounts of money, have incredible amounts of debt, but still be financially perfectly okay because they do make billions and billions and billions and billions in revenue and their expenses are not fixed. Their expenses are adjustable and scalable and therefore they can anytime they want just kind of slash their production in half if they want and they'll be making money coming out the ass. So there, there you go again. And by the way, I'm no economist by any stretch of the imagination. So there's probably smarter people out there than me who can give a better answer to that, but that's always just basically been my understanding. It's a good question, Willow. All right, Alan writes, Hey, John, Rob, with the theaters in trouble, do you think the studios could do more to help or do you think AMC could get bought? For example, why don't studios just open up their catalog and let theaters show whatever movie they want with no limits? Well, I mean, that's kind of been something everybody asked. So why not just do this? Well, I think there are, I think it's more complicated than that. I think there's a lot of contractual and legal things that, that everybody's got to be careful of. There's precedent that you have to be careful of as well. That has always been my first thought. Just make every movie available. But is that really going to make a difference? Because AMC theaters, your local AMC that has six screens, they can only play six movies, right? So they'll contract six movies at a time. But look, bottom line is, could AMC get bought? Yes, AMC could get bought. The question becomes, who would buy them right now? Who would buy AMC right now? Are, are you going to buy? Let's talk about that Apple stand again. You got this Apple stand. There's only one Apple supplier, and they always have rotten apples. And there's only four people that live in the neighborhood, so there's only four potential customers. And the Apple stand is losing $2 a day. And there's really no way to turn it around. Are you going to go and buy that Apple stand for $100 million? Probably not. So that really becomes the question. Who buys AMC theaters? And who's who's willing to come in and spend the amount of money to buy it that the shareholders would with that the public shareholders would agree to a sale? I don't know. It's crazy because the other thing is this. You know, some people bring up like things like AMC. Well, they have all these assets. I'm like, what assets do you think they have? Well, look at all the movie theaters. The vast majority of AMC movie theaters are not buildings that AMC owns. The majority of AMC movie theaters lease. Space, Like, for instance, the AMC Burbank 16 right up the street from me, they don't own that building. They lease that space. They rent it. And right now, AMC ain't paying rent to a lot of their uh, landlords. So it's like they don't even have that. And they own some buildings, but I mean, they don't even have that, those assets to use as collateral to leverage debt ratio, right? They just, they don't even have that. So who buys movie? Th I don't think studios have any interest in getting in the movie theater owner business. I don't think they have any interest in that at all. Uh, but yes, I do think movie studios, because their financial well-being is tied to the well-being of the theaters. So I do believe they'll come up with ways to help. But I, I just don't know how that's going to manifest itself. But I can guarantee you those are discussions that are happening every day between the movie theater exhibitors and the movie studios production companies. That's a conversation that's happening every day. We'll just see what happens. All right. Uh, Scott Brown writes, uh, when I'm, when I'm a fan of something, I tend to be less critical of it and just take it for what uh, for what it is with no perceived expectations. I'm happy just to get more. Why would you want it to be the same as the book or the comic in the original? Otherwise, what's the point? Um, I mean, I don't think if you're a fan of something, I don't think that means anything. 
Like if you're a fan of something, that doesn't mean you sh- you should be less critical. If you're a fan of something, it doesn't mean you should be more critical. Like a lot of people, when they're a real fan of something, they become even more critical of it. Take sports fans, for example. Nobody criticizes the New York football giants more than New York Giants fans, right? Nobody criticizes the Toronto Maple Leafs, God's team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Nobody criticizes God's team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, more than diehard, lifelong Toronto Maple Leaf fans. Nobody will criticize the LA Lakers more than diehard Los Angeles Laker fans. I mean, I mean, that's a real thing. They become their own worst critics, right? And sometimes when it comes to movies, we see the same things. Nobody will be a bigger critic of a property than people who are really big fans of that property. But there's also true the opposite. There's a lot of people go, you know what? I'm just a fan of DC movies, so I'm just happy to see Batman on screen. And that's enough to make me happy. Or Transformers fans. You know what? I just love Transformers. Show me some Optimus Prime and I'm happy. Or they're MCU fans. You know what? I'm an MCU fan. Just have Spidey swinging across the screen. Doesn't matter what else is happening. I'm happy. I mean, that's how fans react to things sometimes. Sometimes they're overly critical. Sometimes they're completely undercritical. Sometimes they're in the middle of the road. The answer is there's no one way you should be as a fan. However you interact with the object of your fandom is a totally unique thing to you. Uh, When it comes to why would people want things the same as the comics or the books, Well, I mean, it's what they're familiar with, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of hoping for that. You read that comic and you loved it the way it was. So you have a part of you that hopes that the movie is going to be just like that. It rarely is, but it's kind of natural to have that hope. And if it turns out close to it, great. If it doesn't, fine. I mean, so there's that too, Scott. All right, next up, Kyle Schroeder writes, um, the joke in the in Family Guy about Kevin Spacey being a pedophile years before it came out or a Seth MacFarlane's joke at the Oscars about Harvey Weinstein before that came out paints a picture where these things were known in Hollywood, but nobody did anything. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't mean that any more than the Simpsons did that. Remember, everybody, when, when Disney bought Fox. Remember everybody surfaced that old joke about the Sims about uh, Disney buying Fox like 20 years ago? Did that mean that they secretly knew? No. There's a million jokes told in media every day. In a television show, movie, whatever, there's a million jokes told every day. You combine that by 365 days a year, you combine that but you multiply that by 20 years. Yeah, there have been times when jokes get made and people look back as a, as a matter of fact, I brought up one on my show before with Chris Pratt. There was the special, I believe it was the special features DVDs of Parks and Recreation season five. I think it was season five. And Chris Pratt was kind of as, as Andy, Chris Pratt was sort of hosting the special features. And so remember we, we play you can find this on YouTube and remember this is years ago. And while, while kind of hosting the special features on the DVD, you know, Chris Pratt is talking to the screen and all of a sudden the phone rings. I go, hold on a second. And he picks up the phone. Hello, Steven Spielberg. What's that? You want to offer me a role in the next Jurassic Park movie? Remember, this was long before Chris Pratt ever joined Jurassic World or there was going to be even there was going to be a Jurassic World. What's that, Steven Spielberg? You want me in the next Jurassic Park movie? Does that mean that Chris Pratt knew that that was no it didn't 
It didn't. Uh, so, no, I do not believe that somebody telling a joke about something years ago and then finding out years later that there was truth to that means that that person making that joke knew about that. I, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, anyway, uh, Kyle Schroeder also writes, uh, I'm not naive enough to believe that Me Too movement stopped these things completely. Uh, it's probably still rampant as recent studies suggest. People are either being more covert or being even more heavily uh, heavily protected. Uh, we've not heard the last of this stuff. Well, you're making assumptions, Kyle. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you that nobody should ever be naive that stuff like that isn't happening at all. I mean, no, don't be that naive. And that's why the industry has, needs to shine a light on it. And it has shined a light on it and needs to continue to, but I don't think, I don't think at all that it's happening to the same degree that it used to be when it used to go unchecked and there was no light shining on it. I don't think that's true at all, but that's just me. That's just my take on it. Um, but they need to continue shining a light on it to make sure it doesn't get like that again. Dixon Cider writes, stupid question, but I often hear you, Aaron and Rob say the phrases lowbrow, highbrow, and on the nose. Can you take a second and explain what this all means? Thank you. They're common. They're common sayings, Dixon. And honestly, I'm, I'm not trying to brush over what you're asking, but honestly, the best thing for you to do is just Google that. The best thing for you to do right now is just go and Google that because it'll give you a much better explanation than me sitting here for 15 minutes uh, explaining it. But these are common phrases used and we use them in the common way. So honestly, the best way I can serve your question is to say it's best to just go and kind of uh, Google that because you'll get a much better, clearer answer than me just trying to sit here and ramble for 10 minutes about, about it. Um, so that's just the best way I know how to serve your question right now, Dixon. All right. Sam uh, Phillip writes. Hey, John, uh, I have a question. What would you say happens most often? A movie gets positive reviews, gets mixed reviews, or negative reviews? Just curious. I, I think it's completely balanced. I think you I think you literally open a movie on Rotten Tomatoes and you are just – you have a one in three chance of seeing that it's got mostly positive, mixed, or mostly negative. It's, it's a one in three crapshoot. I really don't think one has more than the other. Now, I don't know that. I haven't done, <laughs> I haven't done any scientific study or anything. But I would, but I guess if I think about it more, probably mixed, probably outweighs mostly positive by mostly, I don't just mean my 1%, but I like 80% or 20%, you know, over 80, 80% or over on Rotten Tomatoes or like over 75% on Rotten Tomatoes or 25% or under on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I, I I'm going to guess that probably more fall in between that they're, they're a little mixed. So maybe I'll lean a little bit more towards that. Yeah. So I'll go with that, that more are mixed than anything else. But again, that's not me having done any scientific study. That's just my gut feeling on that, Sam. All right. Preston, the Kryptonian writes, Hey, John. So I finally got down to watching The Last Starfighter after hearing you and Rob talk about it. I thought it was a brilliant storyline, but the acting is atrocious. Well, you got to also remember the era that like, the type of movie it was and the era in which it came out. And I would argue that when you take that kind of genre of movie from that era, that's kind of how the acting was in all of them. It was just kind of a style anyway, but the acting was atrocious, especially the bad guys and the effects were laughable. Well, of course, I mean, look at the year that it came out in uh, overall. I thought it was an enjoy. I thought it was enjoyable. I think if I was introduced to it as a kid, I would have ignored these flaws and loved it. This is one of those movies that actually does need a remake. Thanks and keep up the great work. See, that's one of the reasons Preston, why I keep saying that the last starfighter, is actually a movie that is primed 
for a remake. It's something that would, t- would benefit greatly from modern storytelling techniques. It would benefit greatly from filmmaking narrative techniques as well. And it's just a great underlying story. The underlying story is completely solid. And that's why I've said for a long, long time, I think The Last Starfighter would be great for a reboot. I just think, and I, I would argue that the premise of The Last Starfighter is far more relevant today than it was when it was originally made. I think it was in the 80s when it was originally made. I think it's far like the idea of a kid, an alien race using a video game to discover uh, potential people who have the skill to be starfighters through video games. Tell me that's not more relevant today than it was back in the 80s. Anyway, that's just my thought. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Preston. All right. Chris Lambert writes, I know at the John Campia show, we love Lucifer. I love that show. So I like to recommend another show, Moonlight. Uh, you can find it on CW Seed. Uh, there's only one season, Writer Strike, but it's amazing. They fit three seasons worth of story into it. Have you seen it? If so, thoughts. Never heard of it. Uh, never even heard of it. Let me look it up. Moonlight. Uh, I'll go CW moonlight CW. Um, nope, never heard of it. Moonlight was an American paranormal romance television drama created by Ron Klauski, uh, streaming. Uh, the series is available to stream on CW. Now never even heard of it. I'm looking at an image of it right now. I've never heard of it. Tell you what though. I'm very, the likelihood of me and going and starting a show that I know only had one season, probably not going to happen. If I know it just got killed at the end of the first season, unless it's a mini series and was always intended to have one season, um, that kind of sours my take on it. But what about the rest of you guys? Did you guys ever see this show Moonlight that Chris is talking about? If so, what did you think about it? Leave your thoughts in the live chat or in the comment section below. Thanks for putting that on the radar, Chris. All right, next up. Orange Hand writes, Hey, John, you're a sports guy. I am. Why are some coaches and managers so obsessed with analytics that they make boneheaded moves that cost them championships? Social media wasted no time roasting the Rays manager for pulling his picture. Well, here's here's why. Here's why a lot of coaches and managers rely on analytics. It's because of this. Let's say um, you what's a good example of this? Let's say you date a girl and on the third date, she stands you up and breaks up with you. Okay. A few weeks later, you guys get back together. You go on your first date and then you go on your second date. And then on your third date, she stands you up again and breaks up with you. All right. A few weeks later, you guys get back together again. You go on your first date, you go on your second date, but then she stands you up on the third date and she breaks up with you. Your friends will consider you a moron if you either get back together again with her at all, or if you do get back together with again, if you don't fully know that by the time you get to the third date, she's going to stand you up and break up with you again. Your friends are going to consider you a moron because that is the pattern. That is what analytics are. Analytics are finding and recognizing patterns. I completely agree that the Tampa Bay manager made a mistake pulling Snell in the fifth inning 
when he was completely beating the shit out of the LA Dodgers. He owned them. Like he was putting the Dodgers over his lap and spanking them. Like that's just how badly he was dominating them. In the manager's defense, and I agree, it was the wrong decision. I would have left him in there. But in the manager's defense, I was watching Pardon the Interruption, and Mike Wilbon or uh, uh, Tony Kornheiser brought up this really interesting statistic. He goes, here's the thing. Mike Snell in the past year in the first five innings has an ERA of like one point something. But in the second half of the fifth inning onwards, his ERA goes up to 12. So if you're a baseball manager and you know this guy's always great until the fifth inning and then he falls apart and it happens time after time after time after time. Is there not an argument to be made that even though it looks like he's smoking along really well, you're about the fifth inning, you've got the lead, you have to win this game. Don't you at least consider if the pattern tells you that this is the point that he usually falls apart? Again, I would have left him in there. I would have left him in there. But analytics are important, you know, because if there are patterns and you just ignore the patterns, then you're not going to be very successful, right? You're not going to be very successful. So yeah, I, I, I get it. I think some people over rely on analytics, but I also don't agree with a lot of these sports fans that say analytics are stupid. You don't need analytics. Ah, is that true? No, that's not true at all. Analytics are important. Like for instance, guys coming up to bat and you've got an empty base on first base, right? Do you pitch to this guy or walk him? It's bottom of the ninth. The first base is empty. Do you pitch to this guy or do you walk him? Well, what are you going to do to use to make that decision? You're going to look at analytics. This guy has hit 64 home runs this year. Eh, maybe we'll walk him. Maybe we'll walk him and get to the next batter who's only hit four home runs this season. That's analytics. Or if the guy coming up at bat is like, hey, this guy only hits 213 and he's only hit four home runs. We can pitch to him. That's analytics. And so I think analytics are far more important than some people think, but I also think some people far over rely on analytics and don't use their eyeballs. So anyway, that's just my thought on that. All right. Ryan Lohner writes, hey, Mando, what's that Ariana Grande song you're listening to? This is the way. I have no idea uh, the title of any Ariana Grande. I know who Ariana Grande is. I have no idea what the title of any of her songs are. So that's probably a joke that's going well over my head. But by the way, Mandalorian tonight. John, the debut date's tomorrow. I know, but you know they normally drop it around 2 a.m. in the morning, right? I am probably going to stay awake very, very late tonight waiting for Mandalorian <laughs> episode one to drop. I have no idea when it's dropping. They were dropping at about 2 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'm hoping they're going to drop it at midnight, but they might drop it a little bit later. But I am probably just going to stay awake tonight. I could just get up really early in the morning, like set my alarm for like 4.45 or 5 a.m., because the episodes are short, so I should be able to just wake up a little bit earlier than normal tomorrow and watch it, but I think I'll probably be too excited to go to sleep, so I will probably just stay up tonight until whenever Disney Plus decides to drop it. Mando is here, ladies and gentlemen. Mandalorian Season 2. We've waited long enough. FU 2020. Something good is coming today. Mandalorian Season 2, ladies and gentlemen. All right, next up, Chavez Ravine writes, 
I know you're not a baseball fan, but I just wanted to shout out my L.A. Dodgers for winning the World Series last night. It's a dream come true for me since they had never won in my lifetime. I'm overjoyed. I hope your Leafs win it all someday, too. Yeah, it's been a lot longer since longer than I've been alive. It's been since the Maple Leafs won. But no, listen, living in L.A., I got to say it's pretty cool. Um, having the Lakers win the championship and the LA Dodgers win their championship in the same year. That's pretty cool. And I know my wife is a big, my wife was showing me pictures last night of her, her dad and her uncle as she's like a little child that they're still holding or taking her to Dodgers games. I mean, so she's got a real connection with LA sports. And so my wife was like totally into it and cheering and it was really good to see. And it's always good to see these iconic storied, you know, uh, franchises, particularly ones that haven't won in a long time, like the Dodgers win one. So that was kind of fun to see. All right. Next up, double crit rights. One of two. I finally saw the boys amazing show without paying much attention to your discussion segment. I got the impression that the seven was just evil because justice league was just an evil justice league, but each character is morally, morally unique and nuanced except for black noir. I think black noir. I don't think we fully get black noir either, by the way, I'm just going to say, I think there's more to black noir than what we've seen so far. Anyway, my question is, no spoilers. Do you think Homelander would let Stormfront radicalize Ryan, that uh, Homelander's son, if she became his new mom? I know he's evil, but I think even he would draw the line at her racist ideologies. Plus, he wants his son to be the best he can be. Oh, no, listen, I I remember we talked about this. That There's that scene, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to mention something here. If you haven't seen season two of The Boys, which... You probably would have seen it by now if you're interested in it, but just, you know, the next two minutes, I'm going to talk about a spoiler for the boys season two. So maybe just hit mute for a minute. Okay. I warned you. There's that scene where like Stormfront is, there are people who just hate us for the color of our skin. It's white genocide and on and on and on. And like even Homelander, who is as evil as they get. Even Homelander was kind of like looking at Stormfront and you could see this kind of look in his face is like, this chick is crazy. I mean, like sort of thing, right? Like when when Homelander looks at you and goes, shit, you're evil, then you're really evil, right? And so I think, no, I, I don't think uh, Homelander would have uh, allowed that to happen because remember, Homelander doesn't think he's evil. Homelander thinks he's the good guy and everybody just mistreats him and everybody just doesn't appreciate him or give him his due or allow him his privileges, whatever. But he thinks he's the good guy, right? He sees himself as a hero. He doesn't see himself as a supervillain that's just tricking everybody into thinking he's a hero. He thinks he's a good guy and all that twisted morality that, that goes into there. But, but yeah, I don't think he would. Uh, I don't think he would have let that happen. All right. We're good. You can you can unmute you can unmute your computers now. Okay, MD writes. I was moderately interested in watching The Witches, but we don't have HBO Max here in the UK. It is, however, available for rent for $15.99, that's $20 American, for 48 hours on Amazon or seven days on Sky. Not against paying, but I'd much rather have HBO Max or pay $7.99 at the cinema. Yeah, I get it. See, this is one of those examples where and I'm not surprised that Disney Plus didn't do this with Mandalorian, but for a lot of these streaming services that are just getting going, even Disney Plus isn't available everywhere yet. HBO Max is not available everywhere yet. Peacock is not available everywhere yet, and on and on and on. 
CBS All Access is not available. So what did CBS All Access do when they debuted Star Trek Discovery? They wanted people around the world to be able to watch it. So what they did is in countries where CBS All Access was not available, they licensed Star Trek Discovery out to other networks or platforms that were in those countries so that everybody could see it. Others like Disney Plus opted to withhold it and, and keep it close to the vest with Mandalorian. They didn't make Mandalorian available everywhere. It was, if, if you were in a country that didn't have Disney Plus, you just had to wait. And that's why I suspect Mandalorian might be the most pirated thing of all time. But you see what I'm saying. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that HBO Max is doing that. I, I'm curious. Are they are they also putting out like episodes of like Lovecraft Country and something? Like I'm just curious. But that is an option that's available to them. It won't be that like that for long. Pretty soon, HBO Max will be in every territory. Disney Plus will be in every territory eventually sooner than you think. And then that won't be an issue anymore. All right. Uh, the Wakandan forever writes, Hey, John, Wakandans are not uh, ones to blow their own horn, but toot toot. I just got my results back and I aced my midterms. Good for you, man. It has been a really hard academic year. Oh, dude, it's been a hard year for everything. I can only imagine still being in school and trying to deal with this. So to all my fellow students, hang in there and we are halfway through. Uh, go Cal Golden Bears. Well, thank you so much for that, Wakandan forever. And no, seriously, congrats. I, I being a student is hard enough. I, I, I mean, it's it's difficult enough trying to balance everything being a student. Being a student during a pandemic uh, and with all the other craziness going on in the world is particularly tough. So congrats to you and to everybody out there, whether you're in high school, college, postgraduate degrees, whatever. For those of you who are doing studies during this time, good on you, man, and, and keep going. And congratulations on that, Wakandan. All right, Wakandan also writes, chess films. Number one, Queen of Cotway. I love Queen of Cotway. I know a lot of you probably haven't even heard of it. It just came out a few years ago. Uh, I believe it's David Oelua. It's and stars Lupita Nyong'o. Brilliant, magical, makes your heart smile. Beautiful movie. There's no villain or bad guy. It's about good people doing good things. It, it's a movie of hope. I love that movie. I love it dearly. If you have guys have not seen Queen of Cotway with Lupita Nyong'o, do watch it. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Pawn Sacrifice, Searching for Bobby Fischer. I knew that would be on there. Life of a King, Game Over, uh, Kasparov versus the Machine, Brooklyn Castle. I'm not familiar with Brooklyn Castle. Uh, Computer Chess, also don't know that. Jerry's Game, uh, Magnus, 10 Fresh Wakandan Chess Club. Every Tuesday night, we are undefeated. You know what? I have not played chess and again, can't recommend Queen of Cotway enough. Love that movie. Um, I used to play chess a bunch in college. I was never very good. I was never very good. Um, but I haven't played chess in forever. You know, it's funny. Ann and I were, what were we playing or what were we watching? We were watching something. I know it was West Wing. We were watching the West Wing special. That's now on HBO, the new one. And in it, uh, President Bartlett is bringing these these magnificent chess boards that he got from a foreign visit, and he's playing chess with his friends. And like Ann and I were both like, we've never played chess together. It's like I, I was never any good. I don't think she was any good either. But I got to play some chess again soon. All right. Uh, next up, uh, let's see here. Uh, okay. Next one we've got is why can I not see it? There it is. Next one we've got. Finally, I can get to move. Uh, SM89, who writes, 
With Joker and Deathstroke now shooting additional scenes for Justice League, I wonder if it's possible that they that they're setting up Ben's Batman for a limited series on HBO Max. Ben is shooting additional scenes for Justice League uh, too. Also, he's making an appearance in The Flash. So might they, Ben and Warner Brothers, have mended the relationship enough to finally get his script done in a short series? I don't actually think that's what's going on here, but you never know. No, I, I mean I'm in the exact same place with this whole. These BS rumors going around that Zach or Ben has signed up to do an HBO series and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm in the exact same place as you, SM89. Uh, this I'm in the exact same place as you, which is, uh, number one, that I don't think, I don't think that um, Ben is doing anything more beyond these small little things. Uh, and just doing these small little Batman things really, because listen, Warner Brothers loves being in the Ben Affleck business. Not as much as they love being in the Christopher Nolan business, but they love being in the Ben Affleck business. Ben Affleck, I think, is one of the better directors right now working, he, although he hasn't directed a film in a while, but still. I don't expect that we're, no, I don't believe we're going to get a Batman, you know, HBO series starring Ben Affleck, but... I certainly don't think it's impossible. I, I certainly don't believe it's outside of the realm of possibility. I mean, we're living in an era right now where he's coming back at all. We're living in an era where Jamie Foxx is playing Electro again. Is it really all that preposterous and ridiculous to think that he could come back to do an HBO series of Batman based on his original script that he did? It's not ridiculous to think that. Now, again, I don't think that's what's happening. I've seen no proof and no evidence at all to suggest that's what's happening. But I wouldn't bet $100 against it either. So yeah, I, I'm like you. I don't think that's what's happening at all. But it is possible. And that's that's not something I would have said three months ago. I wouldn't have said that that's possible three months ago. But we live in a different world now than we did three months ago. And so I would say I couldn't bet money against it. Again, I don't think that's what's happening. I don't believe that's what's happening, but I wouldn't bet money against it. So that's kind of where I'm at. All right, next up. Oh, we got Russell G who writes, do you think 007 will ever re, uh, reboot back to the 60s and work its way back up to current times? I get keeping it current with times, but also think that it would be cool to see it again without crazy tech, computer hacking, etc. Old fashioned spying thoughts. Well, here's the thing about that. That was always a part of James Bond. James Bond has always had an element of the highest of high tech, almost to the degree of sci-fi gadgetry. Bond going in to meet with Q to get the latest round of the most fantastical inventions and gadgets and whatever that are available, that's always been a staple part of Bond. It was when they did it in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s. That's always been a fundamental part of the DNA of a James Bond film. The cool, almost sci-fi-like gadgets. And what those gadgets are evolve and change as, you know, time progresses. But here's the thing. James Bond has always been set in the modern context. In the 60s, it was set in the 60s. In the 70s, it was set in the 70s. In the 80s, it's set in the 80s, right? It's always been set in whatever the modern context of the time is. That's what Bond films have always done. 
And they've always had the the, the wacky, crazy gadgets and, and whatever that's been a part of it. So I don't think 007 will ever go back to this. I mean, never say never. Who knows what's going to happen in 20 years? Maybe they'll decide as a novelty to make a 60s James Bond, maybe. But all things being equal, no. I, I mean, James Bond has always been in the modern context and has always had a lot of uh, tricks and gadgets and things like that. All right. Next up, James Argento writes, uh, I was wondering if you are going to do a spoiler for Mando seasons two discussion stream with your wife and or Rob slash Harloff slash Ellis, etc. Also, how do we properly submit questions, spoilers for it? Uh, will YouTube super chats be open for spoiler reviews? Excellent question, James. Great question. I'm glad that you asked. So here's what's going to happen. We are going to do uh, open spoiler discussions episode by episode of Mandalorian season two. I will not be joined by Harloff. Uh, I'll tell you right now, Christian, and I haven't even talked about it because I know it's the same reason Christian hasn't asked me to, to do it is because he knows I'm planning on doing one of my own. I already know, even though Christian, and I have not talked about it. I undoubtedly Christian is going to be doing these same videos on his channel, right? So there's no point in us doing one together. There's just no point in us doing it together. So no, it won't have Christian. It may, I think it will occasionally have Anne. When Anne is available, she will come on and do it with me. And my plan right now is to do them in the afternoon specific Pacific standard time of the day of the release. So tomorrow we are going to have a Mandalorian season two, episode one, open spoiler discussion. And the way we're going to do it is we are going to activate because we have super chats deactivated on my channel, but we will activate them for the uh, spoiler discussions of Mandalorian. And that's how you'll submit questions. The reason we'll do that is so that that Mandalorian specific questions, unless you want those questions addressed on the John Campia show, don't get mixed up with what's supposed to be a question meant for the John Campia show versus a question that's meant to be. Uh, used for the Mandalorian spoiler discussions. So when you see the video, the upcoming event get posted on the YouTube channel, you can then go in and you can submit a super chat question or, or whatever. And super chat will be activated for that. So that's how we're going to address it. Thank you, James. I forgot to mention that off the beginning of the show. Thank you so much for reminding me about that. So yes, starting tomorrow in the afternoons, probably about 2 PM Pacific standard time, we will be doing, cause that gives everybody, a good amount. You know, I might even do it in the early evening, maybe five, five or six to give everybody a chance to make sure they've had an opportunity to watch that episode of Mandalorian. But at any rate, whether it's mid or late afternoon, we will be doing a Mandalorian season two spoiler reviews on Fridays. I will announce on the John Campus show in the morning what time specifically it'll be tomorrow afternoon. So thanks for reminding me of that, James. All right. Next up. Uh, let's see an anonymous anonymous mouse writes. Uh, after Sarah Sahai got cast in Black Adam, I'm officially excited for the movie. She's such an amazing actor and was a highlight of my favorite show, Person of Interest. I never did watch Person of Interest. I've always heard it was great, though. Uh, I hope the movie doesn't waste her, but it seems hard for TV actors to make the jump to movies. It is. I mean, it's less difficult today but it's than it used to be, but it's still very difficult. For somebody to get really established and known primarily for a TV show to then make the jump to movies. The lines are becoming more and more blurred. Um, so it's not as hard for that jump to be made today than it was 
a few years ago, but it's still there. I'm very unfamiliar. Like I heard about the casting of Sarah. I'm very unfamiliar with her work. Like I said, I didn't watch Person of Interest, even though that's one I should watch. I should probably binge sometime because everybody I know who watched it really enjoyed it. So I should watch it at some point. So I will try to get to that at some point. All right. Next up, uh, Buster Bunny writes. Well, John, it seems that the world we are in seems that streaming services are trying to bring us back to our childhood. In the 1990s, you got Hulu bringing back Animaniacs, and now HBO Max has just announced that they are bringing back Tiny Toons. Well, here's the thing. I have not, like, I heard Tiny Toons. I mean, did we not talk on this show that Tiny Toons was something that they had in development that they were going to do, I think, a couple of years ago. I think it was not terribly long after I started doing the John Campia show that we did a topic about how they were looking at re-revitalizing uh, Tiny Toons, and they were going to take another swing at Tiny Toons. So maybe this just means they're a lot closer to it now. Maybe they got everything firmed up. But yeah, I've, I've known for a while. I think we've all known for a while. Maybe we just forgot that they were looking at doing Tiny Toons. No disrespect to Tiny Toons, but I'm an Animaniacs guy. I am all about Yakko, Wacko, and Dot, and obviously Pinky and Brain and, and whatever, but uh, Good Feathers, I don't know if they're going to bring good, I can't remember if they're going to bring Good Feathers back. I totally hope they do. It's very mature. The Good Feathers are very, very mature humor, constantly spoofing a movie that I'm sure most children have never seen, obviously in Goodfellas, but I'm an Animaniacs guy, and that's what I'm looking forward to, Buster Bunny. But oh, hey, look, I'll, I'll check out some Tiny Toons as well, but what I'm most looking forward to is Animaniacs. All right, Michael H. Jones tips in $20. Thank you, Michael, for supporting the channel on that level, man. I really appreciate that. And Michael writes, hey, John, the person that wrote in saying their A-list wasn't working on all movies. It's the $5 classic movies that it won't work on. Uh, have seen Tenant twice. Uh, words on bathroom walls and honest thief and new mutants all on a list, but no empire strikes back. That's interesting. Cause I wasn't even aware that a list was still has become activated. I, I wasn't aware that they've reactivated a list. Now, obviously that doesn't apply to me because none of the, I live in LA County and movie theaters aren't allowed to be open in LA County. So that doesn't apply to me. So the special little $5 classic movies, those you can't use your A-list for. That doesn't have any long-term effect because that won't be a thing long-term once the movies start coming back out again. But that's interesting to know. Thank you for the update on that, Mike. I, I was completely unaware of that. But like I said, I kind of live in a little shadow right now, a theatrical shadow because no theaters allowed. By the way, do you see like Germany is closing down their theaters again? Like they're, they're, they take this pandemic thing really seriously and so they see it start to spike again they shut this crap down shut it all down i kind of respect that but anyway yeah that's why i wasn't aware of it so thank you michael i appreciate you putting that on my radar dude i definitely gonna as soon as they start opening up theaters in la again maybe in the next few weeks maybe in a couple of months i don't know who knows but once they do now I know I can start using my A-list again. Thank you for that, man. Uh, Hank Dunn. See, I learned things from you guys. This is great. Thank you, Michael. All right. Hank Dunn writes, I would give up the entire MCU if it meant I could have Sam Raimi's, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 4. I love the MCU, but Raimi's trilogy uh, has way more depth. You probably meant way more depth. Way more personal depth and character than the MCU has ever had. I don't agree with that. Um, uh, P.S. Spider-Man 3 is a great film with a meh ending. I also don't agree with that. But see, that's the beautiful thing. All film is subjective. All film is subjective. 
You know, Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, to this day, I still think is one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. There was a good number of years where a lot of people thought it was the best Spider- the best comic book movie ever. And I think for a period of time it was. Uh, but it's still one of the greats. Spider-Man 3 was not good. Again, it's all subjective. I'm just simply stating my own personal opinion. Spider-Man 3 was just not good. And, you know, we've had this discussion about Spider-Man 3 a lot. Some people, and and personally, I attribute it to Sam Raimi just being attached to the same property for too long. And I think you started to see, because really creative people need to move around. And like, that's why Christopher Nolan, he would do a Batman movie, then do a different movie, then do a Batman movie, then do a different movie, then do a Batman movie, then do a different movie, right? Like he always kept switching it up. And I thought Sam Raimi was on Spider-Man for too long. I mean, we just saw the same patterns repeating over and over again. Okay, so tell me which of Sam Raimi's three Spider-Man movies this happened in, okay? The villain kidnaps Mary Jane and then dangles her from a high place as a trap for Spider-Man. Which of the three Sam Raimi movies did that happen in? It's a trick question because it happened in all three. Did the exact same thing in all three movies. And I th- I feel like once you got into Spider-Man 3, you could just kind of feel that. When you're a creative genius like Sam Raimi, I feel like he's got to keep himself sharp by not staying on one thing for too long. And I really felt like you could feel that in Spider-Man 3. And then some people will make an excuse saying, well, it's, it's only bad because Sony made him put in Venom. Well, then just, then just make a good movie with Venom in it. That's all. Joss Whedon didn't want to have Black Widow in the Avengers. He wanted Wasp. Kevin Feige said, no, we, we got plans. So take out Wasp and put in Black Widow. So you know what Joss Whedon did? Made the greatest comic book movie of all time with Black Widow instead of Wasp. There. I mean, I'm making it sound like it's simple. It's clearly not simple. But I mean, yes, Sony made Sam Raimi put in Venom as the villain. Okay. So are you saying Venom's a terrible character? Are you saying you can't make anything good with Venom? Go and make a good movie with Venom. But anyway, that is the beauty of the subjectivity of film, right? Like I can watch it and talk about say, "Ah, that movie wasn't any good, but you saw it and you really liked it. And that's the great thing about the subjectivity of film. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, Hank. All right, next up, Rich Guns writes, uh, based on the trailer for Morbius, it's pretty clear Spider-Man is tied into the story somehow. I don't think it's pretty clear but it's implied. It's definitely implied. Uh, point is, wouldn't it make sense um, to use Morbius with Spidey being in pursuit of him and have that lead to a perfect opportunity for the new Blade to appear? Am I wrong? No, I, I, I don't know that that's a good thing to do. It's certainly as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, you could do it. I mean, because Morbius is a vampire and Blade's attached to vampires, so you could theoretically do it. I don't see any need to do that, though. I I don't know that it would be, be particularly surprising or if it would add to the story or anything like that, but it's definitely something you could do, but I don't think there's any need for them to do that. Definitely a possibility on the table, no doubt. Uh, to see Mahershala Ali play Blade, that is something I'm very excited about. Like, you, you know me, right? It's never a bad idea to add great talent. Mahershala Ali is a multi-academy award-winning actor. He's one of the best out there. Him playing Blade, shut up. It's, it's going to be great. So whether he pops up and in, 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 in interacts with Morbius at some point, 
Sure. But I don't because, oh, one's a vampire, one's a vampire hunter. I don't think that means they have to be in there together. You know what I mean? But if they do, it certainly does offer up some possibilities, Rich. Absolutely. I just can't. Number one, I'm first. I'm so excited. I've become very excited about Sony and, and what they're doing to me. I know a lot of people crap on Sony to hell with it. I don't care if other people hate it. I Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. I thought in the same year that it came out with Infinity War and Black Panther, I thought Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was the best comic book movie of the year. I thought it was the third best overall movie of the year. The year it came out. I think it was 2018. I thought it was the third best movie of the year. That's how much I love that. I had a great time with Venom. And it shouldn't win any Academy Awards, but I, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you I had a ball watching Venom. I had a great time watching Venom. And Jared Leto's an Academy Award winning actor. I love the trailer for Morbius. I can't wait to see that movie. And so I'm really excited about the Sony slate. On, on the MCU slate, be there crossover or not, Mahershala Ali... <laughs> That's Blade, man. Come on. I, I'm very, very stoked for that. All right. Sean Coast writes, birthdays today, uh, 10th, 10 through 20 or, or October 29th. Uh, let's see here. And today is October 29th. Uh, India Isley. I'm not sure who that is. Italia Rishi. I know that. Uh, ben Foster. Ben Foster. Mm, ben Foster. I, I just don't know. I don't think you can name five more underrated actors in the business than Ben Foster, 40 years old. Uh, Terrace Ellis Ross and Gabriel Union, 48. I love her. Winona Ryder, 49. Rufus Sewell, also fabulous villainous. You, Rufus Sewell is one of those guys. Uh, you'll remember him from Knight's Tale. He's one of these guys where he pops up on screen and you instantly recognize him. But you never quite, what was his name? Nobody ever knew. Rufus Sewell, 53. Uh, Dan Castellalenta, 61. Kate Jackson, 70. Richard Dreyfus, 73. Uh, Ralph uh, Bakshi, 82. And also myself, 22. Happy birthday to you, Sean. May you have a fabulous birthday and a fabulous year ahead of you, my friend. And thanks for writing in with those birthdays. I just saw Richard Dreyfus in, um, what was that movie with Mads Mikkelsen? It was uh, my buddy's a producer of the movie. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it's the one where he's the hitman, where Mads Mikkelsen is the hitman. And that's it's got the lead girl from Vikings, the one who plays Lagatha. She's in it as well. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that movie. Polar. Thank you. Quirky Joe. Polar. That's right. Just saw it. Like, I'm watching this movie Polar with Mads Mikkelsen. Everybody hated it. I got a kick out of it, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't think the movie is great, but I got a kick out of Polar. Anyway. I'm watching this movie and all of a sudden you see Richard Dreyfus make an appearance in it. I'm like, wait, this just does not feel like a movie. Richard Dreyfus would all now, obviously he was there for like one day to shoot one scene, but still it was kind of funny seeing Richard Dreyfus in there. All right. Next up, Kyle Schroeder writes, Amazon is arguing that you do not actually own their video content that you purchase. Rather, you pay for the license to view it for an indefinite amount of time. At any time, they can restrict or remove access to your purchases, and they have done so before. 
Um, you'll probably find similar terms of use in iTunes purchases with the death of physical media will come the death of actually owning your media. Capitalist dystopia. Here we come. They can actually change the movies you buy. I bought Star Wars on Amazon Prime Video in 2014. It was obviously the pre-McClunky version. After November 12th last year, my digital copy was swapped out with the current version uh, with that change. If studios decide to alter their films to censor them or for any reason they can't and have been able to alter your digital copies, they can literally press a button and remove your favorite scene and there is nothing you can do. This scares me. Uh, if George Lucas had edited the original trilogy in a time after physical media, he would have had the power to change the version you bought uh, to the one that he wants you to see and the unaltered trilogy would have been forever lost. The special editions would would be all that exist. Well, okay. So a couple of things about that. There's a lot of truth to what you're saying, Kyle, but also some alarmism. Let's actually look at this for a second. Of the hundreds of thousands of movies that are out there, how many have actually been changed? I mean, really, how often has it really happened? How many times has a filmmaker pulled a George Lucas and done a special edition? The reality is, and I'm pulling this number out of my ass, but I, I dare you to prove this number wrong. Actually, I'd be very curious if you could, but I dare you to prove this number wrong. Probably less than 0.01%. Not 1%. I'm guessing it'll be in the neighborhood of 0.01% of movies that has ever actually happened to. So it's happened more than once. But when you put it in the grand scheme of how many movies there are and the thousands that come out every year, I mean, how many of them actually has that happened to? And the argument, but it could happen. I mean, yeah, it could. But I, when it happens so infrequently, when it happens so infrequently, I don't know that it's something that I would waste much of my time worrying about. I don't know that I'd worry about it very much. Now, look, there are ways. If you buy a movie on one of these digital streaming things, buy one of these movies on the digital streaming things. I mean, record it. I'm not encouraging this. I'm just saying an option that's available to you is Record the stream and keep a digital copy on one of your backup hard drives somewhere. If you're really that worried about it, I'm not. But I mean, if you were, you could do that. And now somebody could say, but John, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, well, you're not supposed to do that with your physical media anyway. And when I had physical copies, understanding how easily they get lost, how easily they got damaged, all that kind of stuff. The first thing back when I still got physical media, one of the first things I would do when I bought a new disc, I would instantly make a backup of it. Even though you're not technically supposed to be able to do that. I would instantly make a backup of it. Now, that was years and years and years ago. Um, but I mean, hey, if you're really, really worried about it, I would say figure out a way to make a backup that you can keep buried away somewhere. But again, like there are plane crashes happen. Do you never get on a plane? Because it's possible that there could be an incident. There could be an air incident. 
no, you still get on a plane because you know it happens so infrequently. It's not really worth worrying about. No, one one is talking about something as dumb as a movie and one is talking about literally taking your life in your hands. I, I get it. It's not an apples to apples comparison. It's kind of ridiculous on that level. But um, yeah, theoretically that can happen. But how often has it actually happened? How often has filmmakers actually gone in and completely changed their movies? How often has a movie that you did have on iTunes and now it's been taken away? I'm not saying it's never happened, but my question is how often does it happen? Because I will, I will tell you this. And again, I can only speak from my own experience. I can only speak from my own experience, which has been, I have lost far more in my lifetime, VHS tapes, DVDs, and Blu-rays through being misplaced, being borrowed and forgotten about them, being then getting scratched and damaged, be, me them getting put into the wrong box and just misplaced, whatever the case may be. In my lifetime, I have lost far more movies. And again, I'm just speaking from my own experience. I have lost far more physical copy movies than I ever have digitally because as of today, and again, I'm only speaking from my own experience. As of today, I have lost zero. Every single movie I have bought in the last 10 years is still there in my online library. Again, that's just my own experience. I know bad things could happen, but at the same time, I mean, I, you know what? Rob and I was were talking about this the other day because Rob has like one of the most extensive collections of physical media. I, I I mean, out of people I personally know, Rob has more physical media than anybody else I know, right? But we were having this conversation. Guess what? They're all in his house. If God forbid him and Elizabeth go out one night and a wiring short happens in the walls, an electrical fire breaks out, maybe the, 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 the oven didn't get turned off, a, a lightning strike, who knows? If for whatever reason the house catches fire and burns down, guess what? The thousands, if not tens of thousands, of physical media things that Rob has and has bought and collected over the years, all of it is gone in one night. It's all gone. It's all gone. But that's only possible. That doesn't mean how likely is it that his house is going to burn down? Not likely. It's possible. But I'd say that's every bit as possible, if not more possible than, you know, Steven Spielberg may decide at the end of Amistad that they have a disco ball come out and they all have a dance party to celebrate setting the slaves free. I mean, yeah, that's possible. Steven Spielberg could do that and put it into the digital edition. But is it likely? Is that likely to happen? So again, I, I think it all it's all about of what's the risk? How important is it to you? What's the real consequences of it? And make a distinction between what could possibly happen versus what is likely to happen. An asteroid could hit Rob's house today and he'll lose all of his, he'll lose his thousands of physical media just like that. Is it likely that an asteroid is going to hit his house today? Obviously not. So you operate on what is likely to happen, not worry about what could possibly happen. But I don't know. Again, and I'm not trying to tell anybody else how to think. I'm just verbalizing my own personal thought process. That's all I'm doing. I'm just expressing my own personal thought process. If your thought process, thought process on this is different than mine, 
Good on you. I'm just saying that's kind of the way my head operates on this. But it's a great topic, Kyle. It's a fabulous topic that I'm sure we're going to be talking about more as as the days and weeks move on. So thanks for sending in your thoughts on that. Very well laid out. I'm glad you wrote that in. All right. We only got a few minutes left here, guys. Certified Loverboy writes, a couple of days ago, I mentioned that Freaky and Crudes 2 are coming to theaters next month. They're universal films, which means they'll probably do shortened theatrical windows with AMC. How do you think this is going to work out? And do you think Cinemark will play with them? I mean, that's, an, that's a fascinating thing that I'm keeping my eyes on. Because here's the thing. Universal has a deal with AMC, which says we can put AMC agrees that they can put a movie in the AMC theater, and then AMC agrees you can then put it out streaming. I can't remember what it was. Four weeks later, three weeks later, I can't re- I can't remember the exact amount of time, but a short, a very short theatrical window because normally the theatrical window is three months, right? If you're going to put a movie in our theater, you got to wait three months before you put it out on home video. Universal entered into agreement with AMC that says if we put a movie on an AMC screen, AMC will allow us to then put it out on streaming three weeks later. But here's the catch. Regal never made that deal with Universal. Cinemark never made that deal with Universal. Uh, Arclight never made that deal with Universal. Alamo Drafthouse never made that deal with Universal. So Universal has two choices. One, only put those movies on AMC screens and don't put them on any other screens. That's kind of counterproductive or put them on every screen and you have to, uh, you have to abide by the three month window and how universal is going to navigate this. I'm very fascinated to watch and see. I'm very, very fascinated to watch and see because if you put the movie on regal screens, it doesn't matter that you have an agreement with AMC. Well, AMC says we can put it online in three weeks. That doesn't matter. Regal never made that agreement with you. So they've got to make a choice to either only put it on AMC screens, which is going to cost them a lot of money if they do, or put it on as many screens as they can and honor the three-month theatrical window. I don't know how Universal is going to navigate this. It's going to be interesting to keep an eye on it, though. I'm very, I'm fascinated to see how they're going to navigate this. All right, Roll of the Egg writes, Hey, John and family, I saw you were having difficulty pronouncing a name. Oh, dude, I have, I, I am the worst with pronouncing names. I like saying, oh, John, you had a difficulty pronouncing name. That's like saying it was on a day that had the letter A in it. I mean, I always struggle with names. Uh, pronouncing a name, and since you will be taking talking about her more uh, as the show on Batwoman season progresses. Oh, yeah, the girl's playing Batwoman. I really struggle with her name. It's pronounced uh, Javicia. Javicia. Is that a Javicia? Is that how you pronounce her name? Uh, Javicia Leslie. Keep up the good work. Come forth the filthy must. Okay. Th- I hope I remember this. Because the next time her name comes up, because we were talking about the new actress, uh, Javicia Leslie. And I say, is it Javica? Javica Ia? I, I didn't know how to pronounce it. Because it was one of those names that I have read a thousand times. Like all the articles about her taking over and what she's done before. But I've never actually heard anybody say her name. I've read her name a thousand times in a thousand reports and stories, but I've never heard anybody say it. So I came to her name. I'm like, is it Javicia or was so Javicia, Javicia Leslie? Guys, if I forget this in the future, please remind me. Thank that is incredibly helpful. Roll of the egg. I appreciate you putting that in there, man. All right. Next up, uh, Nick S writes. 
Hey, John, I've seen a lot of DC fans talk about the new Batwoman costume, but have you seen, uh, but have seen very little talk about the new Red Hood costume for Titans season three? Have you seen it? And are you also excited for any of the other DC universe shows coming over to HBO Max? Um, actually, right now, I'm not really all that interested. Uh, I, I'm really not all that interested in, uh, certainly not in Titans. I'm not all that interested in Titans. I tried Titans season one. I got all the way through Titans season one. And unfortunately, unlike Doom Patrol, which I loved, uh, I really didn't like Titans season one. So that one didn't work for me. So no, I have, I, I didn't even know Red Hood was going to be in Titans season three, to be honest with you. And I don't really care <laughs> to be honest with you. I really don't care all that much. Um, but I don't know if somebody tells me it gets better. I might check it out. Like if somebody tells me season three is a big improvement, I might check it out. But as of right now, I, I I'd be lying to you. If I told you I was actually all that, uh, all that interested in it at all. All right, guys, last question of the day. And then we're going to wrap things up here. Greg Scott Bailey writes one of two. So with the last 100 days of the year, I've been doing the AFI top 100. Good on you. That's always good for film fans to do 65 days and 65 movies left left as of tonight's viewing of cabaret. Very nice. Before this, I had only seen about 21 movies on the list. Uh, what I like a lot is seeing where influences on modern day films and pop culture come from that. I never knew and had original and original originated from old film. Uh, Testingo audio file from Warcraft or other Blizzard games coming from Sophie's Choice, or now even knowing that Sophie's Choice, what's even now knowing what Sophie's Choice is, I love it. Maybe Streep's best movie. You know what's great? This is one of the best things about people going back and watching the the OG, these great classic movies, is when people see them, and I'll tell you, the, the biggest experience I had with this is watching Godfather for the first time with friends of mine who've never seen it. I, I, I've told this before, but I have sat down on a couple of occasions with friends of mine who had never seen the original Godfather and watched it with them for the first time. Like, this is their first time watching it. And I remember... When it was done, I particularly remember this buddy of mine who was the head of that CGI company that I worked for. I worked for a CGI and special effects company for a while, and my buddy was the, the president of it. And I remember I sat down with him and made him watch Godfather for the first time. And it's always cool when you get a movie like that, like this super influential movie where they watch it and all of a sudden you see this light bulb going off going, so that's where this movie got that from. And oh my God, you can totally tell the Godfather influenced that movie and that movie and that movie. And all of a sudden you, all the pieces start falling. It's like, holy shit, this was a really important movie. Yeah. Yeah. For example, a little bit later today, I'm going to be a, a guest on a, on a, on another podcast a little bit later today. And one of the things they want us to talk about was is unforgiven. And it's like Unforgiven is a great example. Unforgiven isn't even like Unforgiven was what? Like in the early 90s? Can't remember. What year did it come out? 90, 91, 92? Somewhere around there. Anyway, Unforgiven, which is only around 30 years old. I mean, I don't know if there's a John Wick if it wasn't for Unforgiven. Like you watch Unforgiven and like I think one of the, somebody's first thing is like, holy crap, this is this basically John Wick is Unforgiven. I mean, kind of basically in a way. 
But uh, but it's great when you get to watch these classic films because it not only do you get to see a bunch of great great movies you've never seen before, but it also vastly increases your appreciation for how those films influence cinema that comes after it. And that's great. And I'm glad you're doing that, Greg Scott. And I wish you well on the rest of your journey getting through that AFI 100. Okay, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Camp Show, listen, there were still more questions to go. Sam Fisher, uh, PNW Girl, uh, Drake Lively, and a couple of others. Do not worry. You sent in these questions. We, When we get to the live questions part of tomorrow's show, we're going to start off with yours. So keep your eyes open. We will. If your question got sent in and you didn't see it read out yet, just come back tomorrow. We will get to your question first thing tomorrow. All right, guys. Thank you to everyone for making this show a part of your day. Special thank you to all you guys who did send in these live questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. Number two, you supported this channel while you did it. And all of us involved with the YouTube channel here, guys. Thank you guys very, very much for that. Don't forget, guys, if you have not done so already, why don't you take a second, go on over and click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the John Campia YouTube channel, keep you up to date on all the stuff that we got going on. And don't forget, guys, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name is John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>